0: Good afternoon and welcome to Town Square. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. As we like to say each week, this conversation includes you. Our phone lines are open at 941-3689. That's the number from Oahu. And from the neighbor islands, 1-877-941-3689. Or maybe you just, all you have to do is dial the 941-3689 from wherever you are and you'll get to us too if you've got your smartphone. Happy New Year and welcome to our first Town Square of 2017 gotta get my mouth around that 2017 and maybe that's where you are too but we know it's here and we know that in a few weeks we're going to see a new administration and that's leading a lot of people to feel quite uncertain and certainly that would include scientists now from childhood on most of us have heard the dictum tell the truth but in a political climate where truth is made fungible what happens to disciplines that depend on the foundations of empirical truth? If news is now more infotainment than fact, where does that leave data-driven studies? In short, what happens to science? Tonight, we're going to talk with scientists who are concerned about their place in a post-truth world. Joining me tonight, Dr. Mark Hickson is the Sydney and Erica Shaw endowed professor of marine biology at UH Manoa, also with me is Professor Joe Mobley of the UH Manoa School of Nursing and you. They've been having discussions on campus about this. We're now taking it off campus and on the air and you're invited to participate 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Welcome to you both.
1: Thanks, Bethan.
0: Not, well maybe maybe almost a month ago you had a big meeting on campus with a lot of your fellows. Was that difficult to to get people to buy into the idea that coming together to stand up for science was now part of what they needed to do beyond what they were doing in academia?
1: Not at all. Actually, we, we held this forum at UH Manoa just as the semester was ending and people were starting to leave. And we were surprised that the room was absolutely filled, standing room only, with scientists who were concerned about the future, not only the future of science itself, but the future of our society as it relates to science.
0: John Mobley, you're in in the School of Nursing. Were there people there from many different scientific disciplines, not just those who would be maybe naturally drawn to it because of climate change?
2: Well, it it was um, just judging from the people that spoke and identified the departments they came from, it seemed primarily to be from the biology and the STEM disciplines. Um, for my own department of nursing, less interest, but uh, but the physical sciences were well represented.
0: Is that an issue? Trying to get through to people who are in various different scientific disciplines that aren't necessarily physical sciences, or or dealing with climate change, which we hear so much about, and because this is so much a part of our lives in Hawaii and, and the research that's going on at, at the university, is it a tougher sell? for those people who may see themselves as scientists, but not necessarily those who see themselves also as political activists for science?
2: Oh, that's that's a real huge issue. I mean, that's one of the things that I think uh, Dr. Hickson and the folks behind that movement were hoping to accomplish is we have to not only get people out of their silos, so it can't be just biologists, it can't be just engineering and so on, but they have to kind of Join forces among everybody who's even related to sciences because it's not going to be any one silo that deals with this. And the problem with people in academia, scientists specifically is they tend to you know just stay in their silo, they don't see their role as communicating to the public, but that's what we are trying to change.
0: Give them some reasons why they should as as you talk to them, Dr. Hickson, and and clearly Trying to make the case that this affects everybody, and if you're a scientist in particular, having a real you know piece of of not just the action as it were, but understanding that this could affect you in a very broad way, and not just because you, you live in a place that might be affected by climate change, but because if it's easy to deny this type of science, well then how how soon until we can deny that kind of science
1: well the cat's been out of the box for some time regarding the denial of science. Um, at the At the national level in the United States, it, it really started during the Reagan administration. And since then, science has become politicized, which is ludicrous because science and scientific facts and natural laws have no political affiliation. The truth is the truth, regardless of whether someone denies it or not. So, This particular forum, people already knew that there was denial of the science occurring. The fear now is that it's going to accelerate dramatically with the new administration.
0: But as as Joe Mobley was pointing out, if it's really within a certain enclave of scientists that are active and believing this, how do you leverage that same thought into other disciplines where you could conceivably get more people to – Stand up and say that this is an important part of life, that once upon a time we had great respect for scientists, and and now it looks a little different.
1: Yeah, the targets of science denial have been specific types of scientists so far. I mean, it started early on with evolution. So evolutionary biologists have been coping with this since the 1920s. Um, climate change then reared its head. More recently... Um, The medical sciences have been attacked, um, whether or not vaccines cause autism, things like that, Um, and it's slowly seeping into a variety of disciplines. So organizations such as the American Association for the Advancement of Science are seeing that and starting to organize all the disciplines of science to work together to address this increasingly severe issue.
0: When you say they're organizing to work together, in what form? I mean, are we talking about rallies? Are we talking about disseminating information? Are we talking about social media accounts? What is the organization of all those organizations? Really all at? the
1: above. Um, some, A group of scientists had one of the first major rally by scientists just in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. In the
0: lab coats, yeah. In the
1: lab coats just to um, express their concern, which was fairly unprecedented. Most scientists won't go marching in the streets, but there's much that scientists can do – just in their everyday lives at all levels of society to defend science and to offer science in a way that's engaging and entertaining and palpable to show people that scientists are human beings to begin with. And secondly, that science is not only intrinsically interesting and entertaining, but it's essential for our safety and our future.
0: If you're just joining us on Town Square tonight, we're taking a look at how science is responding to science deniers. If you're a scientist, if you feel that science is important in your life and maybe your child's life, how do you look at going forward to be able to support science at school, in your own life, in general society? You can call us at 941-3689 or 877 941-3689. Looking at how scientists talk to everyone has been an issue for a really long time. Uh, having talked to a lot of scientists, they've said to me, practically to a one, you know, we kind of have a PR problem. <laughs> We've been sitting in our ivory towers for a long time trying to get words out about what's going on or what particular piece of, of research uh, might have import for people in, in their daily lives. But it's, it's hard, it's tough for us to be able to do that. Is it getting any easier?
2: Mm. I mm, I don't I I've seen it going back to the 1990s when I was involved in a program that was trying to play loud sound uh, north of Kauai and we had to go to all these public meetings and talk to people and convince them it wasn't going to scare the heck out of the whales and so on. And compared to today, it. It seems to be growing, this kind of suspicion of scientists. I'm it, it, not getting a sense that it's getting any better. And it becomes a harder and harder sell when science in higher ed curriculum is something to be avoided. So we, it seems like overall there's fewer and fewer people that are akamai and comfortable with science issues and basic scientific knowledge. But I'm hoping that as we become more aggressive about getting information out there, We can provide people with at least a modicum of understanding of the basics of these issues so they can make informed decisions.
0: Sometimes that can come down to who's funding studies, who's funding the research, how autonomous are they, whose hands are involved with that. We just had a, a caller who didn't want to go on the air who said that, you know, when you have suspicions that are raised by the kinds of studies that may have a lot of massaging, and we've seen some of this happen, you know, through the news cycles where. Different studies have, you know, people have clearly massaged some of the findings to be able to suit something that they were looking for in the beginning, as opposed to simply looking for what they what they could find. How do you start to pull away from that kind of idea of a pure scientist versus someone who is in it potentially for profit?
1: Well, the scientists who are in it for profit are really the a very small minority of scientists, Almost all scientists are in there because they love to learn about the natural world, and we're we're there to offer our findings to society with no profit. I mean, we we may have jobs as teachers, a university professor, but we don't make profit from our science per se. It's just what we do. Because Unless there's
0: intellectual property that can be uh, yeah. So there, yeah,
1: there's those who have patents and those who do are hired by corporations and there it's it's important to have strict scientific ethics in place and there are guidelines for doing that and i would say the vast vast majority of scientists are very ethical people and they're no different from anyone else their job just happens to be to understand the natural world as well as they possibly can in the in the r- most rigorous way they can
0: you've said that a couple of times that you know that Scientists are, are people. They're just like everybody else. That just happens to be their job. Do we look at scientists really differently than we, than we look at other people who have other jobs?
1: Well, there's certainly the stereotype of the scientific nerd who you know wears a white lab coat and can't relate to people at all and only speaks in jargon and equations. And to counter this movement that we're talking about, this denial of science, scientists are starting – starting in the 90s, to get training in engaging with the average citizen, turn off the jargon, dial down all the technical details, and tell the stories as they are as one person to another. And it's becoming more and more effective. So there really is a tension now between this movement of denial of science on one hand and the scientists stepping up to engage society in ways that that refute the denial of science.
0: When you talk about scientists willing to step up, traditionally scientists have not stepped up. I mean, they've been content to put out the information, you know, and that's why we've sometimes had some of the issues with understanding some of it because it's been full of jargon or it hasn't been able to be made uh, as accessible to people or understandable to a lot of people when they're seeing some of this research come out. But that's a different story from being willing to step up and take a stand for science. Are scientists more willing to do that now because some feel so threatened?
1: Yes, they are. Uh, this movement probably began in the 1990s. There was a a um, project called the Aldo Leopold Leadership Program, which was um, funded by some universities to take – mid-career environmental scientists out of the ivory tower and immerse them in understanding the media, understanding basic communication, and taking them to Washington, DC, and merging them with various congressional offices and, and really taking them out and teaching them how to do it. And that type of program has been growing increasingly. And now it's common, especially in the environmental scientists, sciences for graduate students to be formally trained in these kinds of, of approaches and, and ways of working that traditionally have just not been there.
0: The 90s were a while ago, and yet we still seem to, to see that there isn't this communication line that is as accessible as perhaps some of those trainings would, would make possible. What has to happen to be able to fuse science into our lives differently than perhaps is happening right now?
1: I believe probably the most important thing that the average citizen can do is to get their science from reputable sources. And that's not always easy. You know, we we are inundated by blogs and various TV and radio personalities who act like they're experts, but they're not. But... With a little bit of guidance, there are very reputable web pages and other sources of good, clean, well vetted, peer review science that's the closest thing we have absolutely to the truth. And that's where people should get their information. Well, Be how- skeptical.
0: <laughs> well and, and for a lot of people who want to find where those reputable journals are or what you read, what do you both read? Joe, what do you read?
2: Well, we read this, the journals typically of our discipline, but there you know there are broader. Um, but you know, for myself, it has to do with ocean and you know marine mammal science and so on. But uh, you know more and more we're relying on you know magazines that are built around the sciences, like Science News, for example, is a good example because it's it's grounded in you know peer-reviewed science, and they're able to communicate you know um, you know pretty well to folks at a you know, college or higher level. I wanted to add something, if I may, to Please. the earlier comment or question you asked. Um, getting, I mean, that's a, the, the issue of sort of uh, being suspicious of information that comes from sponsored science. I mean, an obvious villain would be the tobacco industry, but as, as Dr. Hickson pointed out, those are the minority of cases. Uh, there's a, a, a mentor of mine who said that all a scientist has is his or her reputation for telling the truth and that 's for us that's golden, and no scientist worth his or her salt is going to risk that by changing the facts to suit the sponsor and so on um, i've done a lot of my research is funded by the Navy, and i've had to you know put stuff out there that the Navy finds threatening, but we put it out there because it 's the truth so that that kind of you know that message has to be kind of carried out to the public. Because it, just because a suspect industry is funded, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're reading slanted results. I think that's an important point that you know people should be aware of.
1: And Do- a follow-up to that is that the the primary funders for science in the United States is the federal government, the National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, and those are research funds that have no connection at all to any kind of. Sponsored connection. I mean, they—they, they, you know, you get the money to do the work, and you do the work. You don't have to have it vetted by, you know, who's funding the work. The vetting takes place with the broad scientific community and colleagues. And any thought that scientists are in kind of vast conspiracy is actually laughable to scientists. Even though a lot of people believe that, we are the most skeptical group of people in the world. When one of us tries to publish something. Other scientists check it out very carefully and will not allow it to be published in a reputable journal unless it passes muster. So it's really, science is this wonderful process that humanity has invented for drilling down to the truth as well as possible.
0: So as all this has been going on, why then do we have such suspicion of of science? I mean, there has to be a failure then there somewhere to be able to get that idea that you just said to us so, so cleanly that, you know, you're not going to waste your reputation on not putting out the truth. Joe Mobley, you didn't do that. And certainly, Dr. Hickson, you don't want to do that. And as you say, scientists who would be equally as concerned as skeptical people of whether something is, is right or so. It would seem that if that's kind of, that kind of pressure is there and that the self-policing within the scientific community is, is always happening, that we might, in fact, trust science more than perhaps we do. What happened?
1: Well, things became politicized. And specifically what happened is that scientific truth came to be at odds with business interests. It's as simple as that. No one would care about climate science if we are already using um, solar panels and there was no chance of global warming taking place. But because there's lots of money to be made in the fossil fuel industry and its related industries, there's been a concentrated funding of denialism. It's been very well documented that since the 1990s, ExxonMobil has poured $33 million into organizations to deny bona fide climate science because it's not good business. It's an inconvenient fact that humans are causing the world to warm.
0: Sometimes you must hear this idea, too, I don't believe in fill in the blank, the idea of having belief in. And there's been a lot of talk about that. How do you answer people when they tell you something like they don't believe in something that you've just told them with, in your mind, empirical fact.
1: Well, Aldous Huxley put it um, very succinctly, facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. I don't know if the average person is going to get that, but basically, you know, if, if one doesn't believe in gravity, gravity doesn't care. The laws of science don't care. The laws of nature don't care if we believe in them or not. But if we choose to not believe them, even after the vast majority of scientists have said this is the truth, then we do so at our peril. And that's very clear with all these environmental issues that we're facing.
0: On Town Square tonight, we're talking about the value of science and how scientists are feeling quite threatened by the coming administration, by a lot of science deniers, and looking to hear from you. If you are involved with science in any of the disciplines, how are you looking at the future, not just with the coming administration, but so many other things that have been happening, as we mentioned from the, the 1990s on? How have you been able to maintain yourselves as scientists? And what would you like the rest of the world to know about why you're engaged with science and what's in it for all of us? Nine four one three six eight nine is our number, 941 941- Three six eight nine. If you call us from Oahu, that's the number to use. And from anywhere else, 877-941-3689. It's tough for people to be able to take time to watch more than just maybe a half an hour newscast or flick on their phones and bring down a couple of news items. Some of the arguments that move through the scientific community take a little more work than that, and most people just don't have that kind of time, so you're not just fighting whether people believe something or not. In many cases, they don't even have the opportunity to get to a point of whether they believe something or even understand it, because they simply just don't have the time. What, what needs to be done in your minds to be able to come closer to the public rather than expecting the public to go closer to science?
2: It's, um, I mean, as both Dr. Hickson and I are, you know, in addition to researchers, we're teachers. And, I mean, that's basically what we do. We take things that are, you know, that come from, you know, people with thick glasses <laughs> and egghead and levels of knowledge, and we make it basically digestible. Uh, so there's really nothing that is so complicated that it can't be conveyed into distilled down to some, you know, basic premises, some basic understanding, and then. A central idea. Um, you know, teachers do it all the time. So it's one of the things that I think is the gap now is that scientists are used to talking to not only peers, but students that at least have a baseline knowledge. But the real task ahead of us will be to communicate to the public where you can no longer presume a basic understanding of what these terms mean and what these principles are. So that's where I think scientists have to become You know, acquire new skills and learn how to communicate to the public in ways that are different than they're used to, but in ways where it distills down quickly.
0: All right, we're going to go to some of our callers who'd like to get in on this conversation, too. Going now to Marguerite. Aloha, Marguerite. Welcome to Town Square.
3: Hi, um,
0: great program.
3: Where are you Um, calling us from? I was wondering if uh, your guests saw a role for scientists in combating this epidemic of fake news. Um, do they have any thoughts or strategies or ideas about the role of scientists?
0: To be able to combat fake news. Yeah. Interest, in, interesting that you bring that up, because we have seen various websites and various organizations that are fact-checkers, you know, we of fact it was one of them, but nothing that's specifically geared to science in in that way. So that if there were to be a fake news story, that uh, you know a science fact checker organization would catch it first and put it out there. No, this is fake news before it can gain some traction.
1: Yeah, well, well there are um, sort of fact watchdogs available, but people do have to go to them. In particular, there for climate science, there are, are a couple or several. Very good web pages that are geared for the public that lay out the facts of climate science very clearly. So if you hear something about climate science, you just go to that web page and see whether it's true or not. But it does take effort on the part of the consumer of the news to then go. And the two web pages I would recommend one is called Climate Central. Which is based here in the US, and the other is Skeptical Science, which is based in Australia. They're both online and they're absolutely superb.
0: All right. Thanks, Marguerite, for the call. going to go now to Michael calling us from Ocean View. Aloha, Michael. Welcome to Town Square.
4: Hi. Aloha. Um, I have a question. Um, religious fundamentalists seem to be playing a big role in this pre- prejudice into science. Um, any thoughts?
1: Well, some of the first denial of science took place um, when there was controversy about evolution. and
0: There was a case in Kansas, actually several cases in Kansas. Yes, and, that, and it
1: keeps, I mean, it's been coming up since the Scopes monkey trial in the 1980s periodically. And so I, I believe that probably started rooting skepticism towards science in the fundamentalist religious community. But on top of that, more recently, there's been studies that show that that people in the United States are becoming more and more tribal. And by that I mean that if I belong to that particular group, let's say fundamentalist religion, then whether I think about it or not, I automatically agree with everything they agree with. So what's starting to happen is this snowballing effect where If I belong to a group that, say, doesn't believe in evolution, then I also don't believe that climate change is happening. I also don't believe that vaccines don't cause autism, et cetera. And the challenge now is to – for scientists to come out of the ivory tower and elsewhere, engage with society as one person to another to see that we're not in a conspiracy – and that engaging science does not have to be a threat to religion or anything else. Science is actually there to serve all of us.
0: That seems to be lumping a lot of things in, in together. You know, we everything from you know vaccines to climate change to evolution. In that sense of of tribalism that you see, is it at all fragmented in in any sort of way where you see any inroads? Where perhaps, if you were able to have some people understand a little bit better what's happening within the scientific community, I mean, I, I mean, in other words, is there's this giant wall? Is it absolutely impenetrable?
1: It's not impenetrable. In fact, the best inroads now are being made by bona fide scientists who are also fundamental religion proponents. They they belong to fundamental religions, and they do not see that there's really a dichotomy between science and religion. Early on, the Catholic Church, for example, Hmm. saw that truth. And now, you know, the Roman Catholic faith completely embraces all aspects of science. But we now, you know, there's other religious organizations that, that aren't there yet. But there are scientists who belong to those groups, members of the tribe, who are speaking up and showing that You don't have to give up your fundamental beliefs to believe in science. I can piggyback on that quickly.
2: Um, Go ahead, Joe Mobley. One of the bigger culprits, I think, now in this tribalism trend is social media. I mean, I, I... if I were just to believe what I write on Facebook and what I see coming back, I would believe that everyone thinks like I do because it's my circle of friends, you know, my however many friends, and we all agree with each other.
0: And it's so easy to find agreement in about 10 seconds.
2: Exactly. And then when I see things that I don't agree with, I just sort of skip it. But I think that's one thing in terms of like, you know, what we can do about this that all of us can do is that when you are in possession of the facts, Rather than skip it and just avoid a confrontation, you know, in your circle of friends on, you know, in, in Facebook or what have you, put it out there. I mean, d- disabuse them of this misinformation. And that's such a simple thing to do, but it, otherwise it goes unchallenged. And I think that, you know, you can kind of stem the tide of misinformation if you take action.
0: And if you're willing to put yourself out there yeah. and take the time to do it. Exactly.
1: I believe that's fundamental. It is the time for being politely quiet when I hear a mistruth is long past. Every citizen who values science at all, whenever they hear a mistruth, they should stand up and say that's not true. And that's and especially scientists have that responsibility because we have that knowledge right at our fingertips. We're the the experts in the sciences. So we're really calling on all scientists to start stepping up and defending science. It isn't about us worrying about losing our jobs. You know, when when we talk about great concern in the scientific community, it's not about us losing our jobs. It's about the future of our society if we choose to ignore science. So with the scientists stepping up, engaging society better than we have before, defending science actively, and all citizens – joining us, that grassroots movement, I believe, has sufficient power to to stem the tide.
0: You're calling out anyone who is involved with science at all to be able to stand up. And I'm wondering, for those of you listening, because we know we've got a lot of scientists of lots of stripes who are listening, are you willing to do that? That traditionally hasn't been something that scientists have been comfortable with. Are you comfortable with that now? Or even if you're not, are you willing to stand up for science? 941 3689 or 877-941-3689. I want to get to your list of things that you'd like to disabuse a few people of in just a second. But first, we're going to take a call from Hoku, calling us from the Big Island. Aloha, Hoku. Uh, Aloha. Um,
3: I am an educator, K-12 educator, and um, your panel referred to politics and religion and, of course, economics as uh, motivators of belief in science. But one part that we're leaving out is K 12 education. And whenever we talk about education, we need to look at teacher education programs and how well are we preparing those teacher education uh, program participants or cohorts to be um, integrated uh, scientists. Because science is not, is life. And uh, life cannot, there is a Native American saying that says, whatever you do, uh, think about the result of your action for seven generations. That is the strongest environmental science quote uh, that I can think of at this point. We're not doing that. And with the rise in this uh, doubtfulness about science, the narrowing of the curriculum, and it happened in the 80s and 90s with the administrations that we had, because of the religious belief, evolution chapters in science books were reduced uh, to two to three pages from one whole chapter. So I have some major concerns about um, this aspect of education and what universities can do to really better prepare all teachers, all teachers, just like all teachers should teach literacy, reading and writing and speaking. We should be all integrating science as well.
2: That's an excellent point. Okay. I...
0: thanks so much, for the, so much for the call. Especially in this state mm-hmm. where you have... A unified central, you know, school board. Isn't it implicit that this be part of the curriculum in a way that maybe it isn't as much as as what Hoku is seeing?
2: Yeah, I mean, it just that it spoke to me personally. I mean, K twelve is the bedrock upon which everything else is based, and during that time, you know, even from the early grades, I mean, it, it it imbues you with a sense of wonder, and it kind of helps to cultivate this curiosity that turns into the scientists. Of later years. I know or it my, kills it. Or it kills it. Yeah. <laughs> I know in my own case, um, there's a few key teachers that I had, especially middle school and high school, that fostered that sense of curiosity and laid down the foundations enough where I was able to grow it further and you know, on into grad school and um, go into research. It's, that's essential. I totally agree with you that we have to you know invest much more effort and attention and you know promoting the training of teachers and
0: So what does that mean specifically? When you I mean because we hear the the broad painted picture of we have to have more of this in K to 12 but what specifically would each of you want to see brought into K to 12 education as it exists now that would further the aims of, of science in, in in respect and also in understanding as as Hoke was saying that you know science is life.
2: There's already incentives to help you know promote children you know there's going to you have science um um you know education have science projects and things like that but the more we can elevate that you know especially the integration of science say and traditional hawaiian culture things like that that perhaps are different here than anywhere else where um you know children learn to become proud of their knowledge and their uh curiosity uh crystallized into these things and th- this just needs to be promoted a little heavier.
1: I, I'd personally like to see greater connection between university scientists and K-12 to teachers. Um, it doesn't have to be formal, but, but that connection will help bring some of the most exciting findings, new findings, down to the lower grades. Because I, I agree with Joe, it was inspiring teachers that helped me Find my path onto science and whether someone becomes a scientist or not just the appreciation of science is what saves a society Nine
0: four one three six eight nine is our number if you're on Oahu use that one or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. 941-3689 talking about standing up for science tonight not only with scientists but what is that connection between scientists and, and the rest of us in understanding some of the things that they do That they say that we fundamentally have forgotten Or aren't paying enough attention to We want to hear from you How much attention do you pay To science and to scientists And if it's a part of your child's life Is it enough We just had a caller who said That we need to put more attention into K-12 What about in your child's school 941-3689 Or 877-941-3689 we want to hear from you I want to get to your list, Dr. Hickson, of, of some of the things that you think that we don't really understand as well as we should or some of the things that have been politicized in a way that uh, has shaped some of the discussion that you'd like to see turn back more toward a purely scientific perspective. What's on your list?
1: Well, I think number one on the list clearly is climate science. Um, the fact that humans could possibly alter the Earth's temperature by burning fossil fuels was first posited by a science in the 1890s, that possibility. And subsequently, people began to study that more and more. And it became very clear by the end of the 1970s, in fact, ExxonMobil's own scientists showed that, that we were, in fact, changing the climate by burning fossil fuels. At that juncture... Industry, corporations could have gone along with the scientists and we could have started seeking solutions. Instead, the choice was, let's fight this. It's become very well documented. And that's when the disinformation campaign began and denial of science took a big, giant leap.
0: We talk a lot about climate change and climate change deniers. In Hawaii, because climate and our beautiful state that welcomes visitors every single day of the year is such an important part of our lives, it would seem that we would have a vested interest in that, and yet we still see big buildings being built closer to the shoreline, and we see that we perhaps play more lip service than actual understanding, uh, or or that we actually act on that understanding in a way that would say that we do care about not just seven generations, but maybe two down the line, which is, if you know, looking at some of the forecasts that we've seen for the rest of this, this century, uh, certainly don't make it look like it's going to be a very welcoming place to be right there on the shores of Waikiki. I
1: have to agree with that. I, I lived in Hawaii 35 years ago and came back four years ago for this wonderful job at UH Manoa. And in that three decades, the changes I have seen on this island were just absolutely shocking. I'm a marine biologist, I mostly work on coral reefs, and the first thing I noticed was, where are all the fish? And not only just fish, but where are the fish that eat seaweeds? With climate change and ocean warming, we're starting to see these coral bleaching events, which can kill the corals. The last couple of years, we had fairly severe bleaching. On Oahu, the bleaching recovered. The corals are OK. On the Big Island this last summer, we've got a bunch of dead coral there now. And it's going to be getting worse and worse and worse. So where do these seaweed-eating fishes become important? When a coral dies, If if those herbivores are there eating the seaweeds, the new baby corals can settle and grow. If not, seaweeds grow and the corals will never come back. Hawaii has not embraced this very simple fact, which is just one piece of the whole climate disruption scenario. On top of that, many of these fish, the parrotfishes in particular, poop sand, so they're adding to our beaches. A recent study in the Maldives showed that um, 90% of the sand on those islands is produced by those fish. These are the fish that are overfished in Hawaii. So, you know, that's my small area of expertise. And just that shows me that Hawaii really hasn't gotten it yet about what we're facing, how all things are connected, which is what the ancient Hawaiians did know, and that We need to make the changes so that the next seven generations can thrive.
0: When you layer on the issue of of runoff, we've talked about that on various different islands that have had real issues with changing the the topography of the land and through development seeing a lot of runoff happening, that in addition to perhaps the settling of the the seaweed and clearly you're not going to have fish that are going to be able to deal with the, the runoff But that's something that, as what Abbey of the university has told us many times, we could control some of that. So why are we not controlling the things that we can control? And it always seems to point back to profit and development.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the Ahupua'a approach was perfect. Why haven't we kept it?
0: If you'd like to join us tonight, our number is 941-3689. If you call us from Oahu or 877-941-3689. If science is important to you, how much are you willing to stand up for it? Are you willing to say that, well, science is not only important in your child's education, but it's important in your own? It's important that we have facts. Are you willing to counter arguments that friends and family may give you based on certain beliefs that they may have and and be able to combat them with, with facts. Are you willing to do that, as Joe Mobley was suggested a moment ago that, you know, to take the time and actually bring a discussion out that might be a little uncomfortable. Is that something you're willing to do? A lot of scientists are being challenged with that, asked to come down from not just Ivory Towers or Academia, but to be able to come out of their labs and to be able to uh, make a stand for science, are you willing to do that too? Nine four one three six eight nine is our number nine four one three six eight nine or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. What is going to happen to science in the post truth world that we seem to be inheriting post truth being one of the uh, was a number one word that the Oxford Dictionary added. You know, the idea of, of talking about post-truth, when we tell little kids to tell the truth, what was the truth of the situation? We talk about it, but when it comes to science, somehow that truth seems to be fungible. What is it that you think that we have to do going into this next period of time where we have a very clear and different perspective coming out of or will have coming out of the White House with the next administration. There have been rallies planned. There have been uh, people choosing to come together and have some of these discussions. But what's going to make a long-term difference? Is this going to be just something that's going to be somewhat of a flash in the pan because people are upset over the inauguration? What do you see happening in the long term to be able to shore up science and to be able to make the point to the rest of us of how important science is in each of our lives, whether we realize it or not. We
2: have to reinstill a valuing of truth. Uh, uh, Dr. Hickson raised a very good point that we can no longer just be polite. And just stand back and avoid confrontation. That when we hear things that are just patently untrue, and it's not a matter of a belief system. You know, many of these things they say are just simply not true. And, you know, it it is politicized and it is something that can get very heated very fast. But if you're just dispassionately and without getting in someone's face, just providing information that kind of sets things right and just – I'm sorry, but, you know, you cite your source, you know, just let them know where the information comes from. Uh, you hope that reason prevails and that the tribalism will eventually kind of be permeated and you get some sense of like, oh, I guess you know, that makes sense. But we absolutely have to reinstill a sense of truth. And that's, you know, primarily in the education system. But um, it's up to the media in a large part. The media has to kind of do its own filtering and be a little less polite. As well, and if things are said that you know are stand in the face of fact, it needs to be pointed out, you know, again and again. Um, you know, we, the scientists, we're guilty of this. Liberals are guilty of this, but we have to all become activists and not only stand for our own discipline,
1: but stand for the things that we just simply know to be true in general. This point about the media is important because. Traditionally, the media seems to think if there's any kind of controversy that involves science, then we must give equal time to both sides. Well, it becomes absurd after a while, and it's become absurd about climate disruption. Um, a, a recent survey showed that you know 97-plus percent of all climate scientists are on one side of this issue— and the 3% are on the other side, some of whom have been documented to be funded by the oil companies. So why would we give 50-50 time to both sides of that issue in the media?
0: We've got a lot of callers on the line who want to get in on the conversation. We're going to go now first to Barry from Honolulu. Aloha, Barry. Thank you for your patience.
4: Yeah, I'm glad to come on. Uh, This is for Mr. Hickson. Uh, the new extended protected area under the ocean that goes all the way out to Midway Island. Uh, uh, Obama extended that. It originally was proclaimed by George W. Bush. And it's a big hunk of land. What concerns me is not the wonderful protection that the U.S. is offering for that, cannot mine uh, ore under it, uh, their fishing restrictions, but the fact that we're claiming that land as something that the United States can control, is my question. You know, the Chinese are trying to build an island down in the South China Sea out of sand, and, and we're we're slapping their wrists as fast as we can. But there are over 300 million acres that we are claiming. Can you please explain why it is within the rights of the United States to expand our control out to Midway Island? Thank you very much.
1: Okay. Uh, but- well, each of the nations of the world claims the ocean out 200 nautical miles. That's that's the limit of the territorial sea for each nation. And so that small string of islands that extends off to the northwest of the main Hawaiian islands, which has now become Papahanaumokuakea, Marine National Monument, is all in U.S. territory, the entire thing. And so, you know, originally... Um, President Bush um, started the monument with a 50-mile buffer around the islands, and now they've gone out to the full extent of the 200-nautical-mile limit. So this is U.S. territory.
0: Thanks very much for the for the question and for the answer. Going now to Jake, calling us from – where are you calling us from? From Kahuku. Um, okay. Um,
5: yes, ma'am. I'm calling from Kahuku. Um Not really a question, more of a comment, because I've been listening to this, and it's a very fascinating conversation, and definitely one that needs to be had, particularly when it concerns how galvanized the country is, um, and all the the bad science, the uh, the, uh, statements you hear of, you know, oh, well, nobody can prove global warming, and it's like, you know, um, global warming and cooling has been proving for the past few million years that the climate goes up down side to side, and mankind is definitely having an impact. But um, more a statement of, um, you were talking earlier about how important it is to, to challenge views in the non-science people state. And I work in a, uh, an environment that is very, very strongly politically right-leaning. And um, being a liberal, being a uh, left-wing person myself, um, I've found that the best way to kind of deal with the non-science is not so much to counter it as to not engage it. Um, And the reason I say that is because we've become so galvanized in this country in one direction or the other. The common sense has gone right out the window. And sensible, intelligent people are falling for non-science simply because they feel like they have to pick a side. And um, in my line of work, I work work with... uh, um, I work with marine biologists quite a bit. I work with fisheries a lot. Um, And seeing the polar opposites um, in that line of work from one end to the other, going from working with those guys to the people that I work in in my field office with who are very right-wing, you see just that extremism. And I, I love the energy, and I love the fact that science is, is getting out there and doing things. But I, I really like watching what's happening. I really feel what's what's most important is that we kind of come together and let go of the animosity. And once that happens, we can start talking some sense. But until people calm down, take a deep breath, and step back, there's not any sense going on. Jake, you can't change opinions.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to stop you right there because I, th- I think that you're echoing a little bit of what Joe said a moment ago. Of being able to not engage it in uh, an aggressive way, but just being able to say, well, have you seen this or what do you think of that? But he also brings up a point, Dr. Hickson, that if you have people who are not going to listen then is there virtue in simply not engaging with that as much as that may not be what you want to hear personally? But is that something that is a viable tactic, especially when you have people who might say, well, I don't care about your science or my science is better than your science if they happen to be in that 3% that you mentioned earlier?
1: There are people who are whose minds are absolutely closed. There's there's no question about that. And I, I believe after a fairly brief period of time trying to engage with such people, it's clear that basically I'm wasting my time, so at that point, yes, I disengage. Um,
0: you're not going to get everybody is no, your there's no I'm way to right. get everybody right. for okay. sure Well, we have a few more folks who'd like to get in on this conversation if that includes you, our number is nine four one three six eight nine or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine going to Vicky calling us from Honolulu. Aloha Vicki, thanks for your patience.
5: Hello. Hi there. Hi. Uh, My question is for those of us who are in academia, how do we gain access to actual scientific data, like if we're doing our own research um, for ourselves or for our community?
0: Well, I applaud you for wanting to. We talked a little earlier in the program about uh, checking out certain websites, maybe you want to give those again, because you were really saying that it's going to be incumbent upon people who want to find out to have to go and look for some of that information, because it is published, but it's not going to necessarily come to you in in your, your Twitter feed.
1: Yes, Vicki, I, I so much appreciate your question. Thank you so much. If it regards climate science, I would recommend two different web pages. One is called Climate Central, and the other is called Skeptical Science. They're both um, run by highly integrous people who um, are reporting peer-reviewed science. That is science that has been well-vetted among other scientists, and, you know, it'll, it'll set the facts straight. Um, there are such web pages for most um, types of science. So I, I would just say a, a, a web search that especially pulls up a professional organization. So, for example, if you're interested in ecology, I would go to the um, Ecological Society of America professional group something like that.
2: Or if I may, too, there's a very simple and accessible way to access the source of the information. If you go to Google and just type in Google Scholar, it'll take you to, um, well, Google Scholar is a search engine that only goes to the peer-reviewed journals. So you can type anything in there. You can type coral reef bleaching, for example. It'll take you to the the actual peer-reviewed journals. You could read the abstracts and um, so that takes you to the source of the information itself, and um, that, that way you don't have to rely on what you know, periodicals are presenting to you. You can find out whatever you're specifically interested in and have some assurance, because it's peer-reviewed, that it passes muster.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Vicki, for the question. Going now to Roma, calling us from Maui. Aloha, yes. Roma. Aloha. Aloha. Um, as I'm listening
3: to the program tonight, I'm noticing that my investment— and respect for science as far as health and um, medicine is concerned has been very eroded over the course of the last couple decades partly because the pharmaceutical industry is so money-driven that you don't know who you can trust and who you can't trust and i'm aware of the fact that there may be some very real scientific advances going on But I'm not even listening to the conversation anymore, and I wouldn't know as an ordinary person, not being a scientist, which things are money-driven and which things are not.
0: That's a question that we had from someone who didn't want to go on here a little earlier in the program, really concerned about how do you know what the source is and and who is doing it, and in fact, if they are part of of a pharmaceutical company or other group that might have something to gain by a certain outcome, right?
2: That's you know that goes back to my earlier point that I, I remember having a discussion with someone about vac- vaccinations and, and you know having to do with uh, autism and so on. And I, I went to Google Scholar and just put in you know autism and vaccines, and you know you you see the when you see that the, the sources of funding are from the you know, big pharma, the pharmaceutical companies, and so on. You might want to pass through those, but get into the the basic ones that are not necessarily, you know, funded by um, you know, corporations like that. In other words, it gets you access to a lot of information very quickly. Then you get a sense of consensus. What do most of these folks seem to be saying? Um, That helped me wrap my mind around that whole issue very quickly.
0: But what you're really saying, though, is that it's still going to be incumbent upon people to go and find some of this information that you cannot rely on necessarily media sources or something that may simply come into your, your Twitter feed or on your Facebook page or from somebody else. But if you have an interest and you want to know, then you're going to have to take a little time and go find out yourself. That's tough for a lot of people who say, I'm so busy, I don't have time for this, I don't have time to do you know, much of anything else other than what I'm already doing. But you're saying that you have to put those things away and make time for that.
2: If you really want to know the truth, and sometimes it requires a little bit of searching, but it could be accessed quickly if you're discerning and you know the kinds of things to look for. We only, and and it's also
1: time for the scientists to to engage more with society and make that information readily available in, in various venues. And cooperation from the media would be very useful there.
0: Well, and that may become an issue in terms of who is shut out from what information and what information will be placed in the public sphere based on how much of that information actually gets through the, you know, the, the screen or gets through that conduit which you're calling for from the scientists, which goes back to an early part of our conversation tonight. Isn't it really coming down to, if you will, a PR issue or a marketing issue for scientists to be able to not only just stand up, but be able to find real points of access so that the rest of us can hear some of this in, in ways that will be accessible.
1: Both sides have to reach out to each other.
0: Which is what you're calling for in, yep. in lots of ways, but especially as we're coming into this next uh, couple of weeks where we're going to see the inauguration and many events planned around the country, the Women's March in D.C. And, and in states and, and throughout Hawaii and also on, on, on the college campus.
1: Yeah, UH Manoa is hosting, they haven't called it this, but it's basically an anti-inauguration um, for the public that will involve um, talks by various speakers um, and, and a variety of activities to to call attention to the problems we're facing with the new administration. And
0: that's going to be on which date?
1: That will be on Inauguration Day, January 20th. All There's right. also a march um, downtown on the 9th.
0: All right. We're going to have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you both for coming in. We'll be checking in with you and seeing how this is moving through your your scientific organizations and also your various departments. And thanks to all of you for calling in with your questions and your comments. Good to hear from you and hope you're having, having a good start to your new year. Many thanks to Dr. Hickson, many thanks to Joe Mobley, and to you. We'll see you tomorrow morning for The Conversation. In the meantime, have yourselves a good evening. I'm Beth Ann Koslovich. Aloha.